welcome to Maven America, a show about the American immigrant experience. I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a writer and a comic, and also, just lately, I've started to do impressions. Can you guess who this is? How do I know when my angels are near? What signs do I look up for? That was a lady on Irish television who was wondering how to find angels. She was from Tipperary, which is famously a long way away. Now I live in New York, which is a long way away from where I was born, and I'm obsessed with other people who've moved here too. That was the long way away explanation of why I'm making this series, to bring you the most fascinating, funny, sometimes sad immigration stories that I can find. Each episode of Maven America features one person, one immigrant story, but we also look at the bigger picture, and that's where we'll start, with cold hard data from warm soft Mona. Hmm, that doesn't sound right, but I've said it now and there's no way we can edit it out. Anyway, data editor with The Guardian US, today I asked Mona Chalabi to bring me all the data she could about languages. Data, please. Data, please. I'm here to give you some numbers about languages, like uh, the number of people that speak various languages, how hard languages are to learn. I thought maybe that'd interest you. Danke schön. Sorry. <laughs> thanks, Mona. Do you know how to say thanks in Arabic? Might be nice. For you. Uh, oh, you've already done the interview. Mushy you? mushy. No. <laughs> um, okay, Mona, how many languages are there? There are loads and loads of languages. I was really surprised by this number. So this comes from the 18th edition of Ethnologue. There are at least 7,102 languages in the world. How many languages? 7,102. 7, I think I could name maybe like 15 languages yeah. or something like that. That's kind of not surprising that you can only think of 15 because the fact is is that actually most of those languages aren't spoken by very many people. Mm-hmm. So actually 96% of those 7,102 languages are spoken by just 3% of the world's population, which is why loads and loads of languages are actually going extinct. It makes me think about the Irish language where just like mandatory to learn it in school. But people don't use it day to day, except for these little, they're called Gaeltacht, where you speak Gaelic. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about English? About 527 million people in the world speak English, making it the world's third most spoken language. Can <gasps> you guess what the first and second ones are? I mean, Chinese, but like Mandarin or... If you collect together all dialects in Chinese, yeah. it's 1.39 billion speakers. Oh, wow. Yeah, so more than... No, not more than twice as many, almost twice as many. And the second most popular, Urdu? Hindu, Urdu, yeah, 588 million. Oh, cool. And Arabic isn't actually that far behind English, so 467 million. Do you try to learn it? I did, yeah. I tried multiple, multiple times. It's a really hard language. Yeah, because I would think Arabic is a really hard language, but then I'm like, no, Maeve, that's just your like English no. speaking No, 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 there's even data on this. I was really, really fascinated. I had no idea about this. The US Department of State actually publishes a list of mm-hmm. different languages, depending on how... They're great for their lists, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I bet they do keep a list of Arabic speakers. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was Go a good ahead. one. Um, so they categorise... About 70 different languages into four different categories from hardest to easiest. So category one for English speakers 
are Danish, Dutch, French, Italian, Norwegian, Portuguese, Romanian, Spanish, and Swedish. So those are the easiest. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, you know, a huge part of it is the fact that the alphabet's the same. It's even written in the same way, like Arabic is written left to right, English mm-hmm. is written right to left. Yeah, but that's not that hard to get your head around, is it? You just open the book from the other side. <laughs> that's what's got me. <laughs> Where is this Chinese come well, Chinese, Arabic, Japanese and Korean are the four languages in category four. Oh. So it really is considered like the hardest. And I've I've tried to look into how long it would take to learn those mm. different languages. And there are different estimates all over the place. But um, one of the ones I found was that it takes about 2,200 hours to oh. learn those languages that are in category four, like Chinese and Arabic. It would take you six years to learn oh, Arabic if you studied God. for an hour every day. Mona, thank you. You did so well. I did better than last time, didn't I? I did. That was Data Please with Mona Chalabi. She'll be back next week. Until then, you can find her cool stats and graphs at Mona Chalabi on Instagram and Twitter. And now, on with the show. Meet Naya Frebid, six foot four, dreamy brown eyes flecked with sparks of green, who came to the door of his Seattle apartment in a Captain America t-shirt and gave me a hug that would cure all the ills of the world. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Thanks for coming. No, so great Hi, to meet it's really you. Nice to meet yeah, you, you too. In. Thanks. I took off my shoes, met Lotus the cat, and asked Nayef to introduce himself to you guys. First year, I was like a pharaoh, like Egyptian pharaoh. Um, I was sexy devil. I was um, uh, oh military guy. I can try it for you. Odo. No, that's the wrong bit of tape. Those are some of his past Halloween costumes. That's his favorite holiday. In fact, there was a man-sized peacock costume hanging on the window, which he'd made himself. This is Nayef. So uh, my name is Nayef Haribid, and I'm from Iraq. I born in 1978, and uh, I come to United States in 2009. But back to that peacock costume, which Nayef immediately tried on for me and strutted around the room. And I, sometimes I just walk like that. And that's how I walk. <laughs> you can see that video on my Instagram, at Maven America. But did you catch that Nayef mentioned he once dressed as a military guy? Well, for a long time, a military guy was more than a costume. It was his life. My fellow citizens, at this hour... American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Before he was a Seattle-dwelling, Halloween-loving cat dad, Nayef was an art student who picked up some work as a translator for the U.S. forces after they'd invaded Iraq in 2003. I'm in a fine art college. Uh, I'm an artist, like doing paintings, uh, mosaic, different other media stuff. In that time, it was safe for me as translator because everyone after Saddam gone was loving that the Americans there because the bad guy is gone. Mm-hmm. And so I was safe. And I was uh, very close to my home. So I came back home at night, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was just normal job. A normal job. That's how it started off for Nayef and many other young Iraqis. Working for the US forces was a paycheck, an opportunity to learn new skills and speak English. And he'd always loved American culture. 
learning English early on through pop songs. I remember Madonna last night. <laughs> that one was, I was, don't know what she said. So I bring a, um, a paper and pen and write it in Arabic how I listen for it. I don't know what the words mean or whatever, but it sounds cool. <laughs> you know, and after that, in 2000s, uh, when I was in college, Backstreet Boys, you know, and I love <laughs> bass songs. And, yeah. and I have big poster in my uh, room when I was sitting back then with, with a picture. And everyone, with a picture of the Backstreet Boys. Y- yes. <laughs> and everyone was saying, like, are you serious? Why you not put a girl's picture? Why put a guy's picture? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, it's, they're my favorites. But I was also like the way how they look. So... <laughs> But you were like, I just love their music. Yeah, I love their music, you know. (laughs) And also David Beckham. David Beckham. Oh, yeah, he was so handsome. Nayef is gay, which is probably obvious from our time spent objectifying male celebrities from the 90s. But I mention that because it's a huge part of his story. The last few years have seen ISIS targeting the LGBT community in particularly cruel ways. But before that, too, it was impossible to be out in Iraq. Identifying as queer was deadly. They find out about me or I'm gay and they're going to, you know, either shame me, kill me. Anyone in the street, back in the street in Iraq, he could judge you. And one of my friends, the, the family, the brothers and the father, they killed him. And we not hear about him like two months after two months. We, we know um, what happened. We heard the news about he got killed by his family. Did they say that he just died or how? No, they, it's, it's so normal. Back now to wartime Iraq, the summer of 2004, when there was a growing danger of a different kind, as our gentle artist found himself on the road, headed to Ramadi. Half the total number of US servicemen killed in Iraq during March gave their lives in Ramadi, now the last great stronghold of the Iraqi insurgency. Grueling fighting continued today in Ramadi. Nayef was in the middle of it, interpreting for the U.S. forces. In a recent documentary made about Nayef and his life, it's called Out of Iraq. He talks us through a real raid done by American soldiers. Just note that this clip contains explicit language. Got it? All right, let's listen now. People give us names. And those names work with the terrorists, or they have weapons. They kick the door when people sleeping. Get the fuck up! Put him down, dude! Put him down! Get him out of here! Get the fuck down! Get the fucking down! Go! They all scare, they all scream, kids cry. And I have to talk with them. I try to do my best to tell the family everything will be fine. When you are in these very intense, high-stakes situations, you want to employ interpreters who are fluent in the dialect of the region, um, very familiar with um, the neighborhoods, their surroundings. That's Mark Doss, our context king for today, who works for IRAP, the International Refugee Assistance Project, based in the Urban Justice Center here in New York. I'm a supervising attorney, and 
I represent refugees and special immigrant visa applicants throughout the resettlement process. Mark, I didn't realize you were an attorney. I thought you were like... Yeah, I I am. I mean, (laughs) I try not to say it out loud, but I had to right now. (laughs) And and went to law school and the bar and all that. But But, okay, this will show my like biases, but like, because you're wearing New Balance shoes and like a cool shirt. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One of the perks of um, working in nonprofit is that you can... You can't afford suits. You can't. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You'll be glad to hear I focused and asked Mark about the role that many of his clients have filled, local interpreters for the U.S. military in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. An interpreter is just one of the most essential um, positions in the military. You're not just translating, but you are the literal eyes and ears of the soldiers and can provide context and tone, everything that kind of is wrapped up in language. There's a huge risk involved in working with U.S. forces, and despite changing their names and moving around the country, interpreters were often identified and made into targets by others, as were their families. They can easily um, spread word back to um, your hometown and say, um, this family is, they're sympathizing with the U.S., they're traitors, and that's why many people had to flee too. Um, They were put at risk, their lives were in grave danger because of their service to the U.S., Back to Nayef, who experienced this firsthand. So people start uh, have problem with the American troops. It's definitely changed a lot. It's not like how when I started. So it's now something threatened. They write uh, about the translator uh, in the walls. If anyone catch translator, he, they will give him that much, you know. So they wrote this on the walls. walls. And they say the translator, um, the uh, traders, uh, and they threaten, uh, you know, and all that stuff. So in that time, is and they start killing a lot of translator. And that time is not easy for me to come back home. So did the translators get extra protection from the the U.S. Army? That's the things. The U.S. base is this all the only place we feel safe in it. The U.S. military base, or, of course, the U.S. itself. The American government distributes a specific visa that allows local people who've worked for them in conflict zones to come and live here. Mark, the casual dresser from IRAP, explains further. It's called the Special Immigrant Visa, and um, it's often known as a translator-interpreter visa, but Mm -hmm. it's actually um, broader than that. There's a whole range of people who... uh, worked on behalf of the U.S. Army and were eligible for this visa. Sounds logical, right? But the Iraqi program closed down for new applications in September 2014, and the Afghan program is set to expire for new applications at the end of this year, unless Congress renews it. And as well as that... There are a limited number of visas. There are many, many um, applicants, um, and the processing time is very long. The whole processing time should take nine months, Mm -hmm. as mandated by Congress. And we have some clients who have been waiting over six years. Wow. What kind of situation are they waiting in? They're they're in hiding. They're changing locations. They're changing phone numbers, kind of living on the run, living in secret. They're not really fully one foot in Afghanistan or one foot in the United States, right? It's very hard to work because that's an immediate marking on you that you were allied with the United States. And so it's incredibly dangerous, um, especially with 
a resurgent Taliban or ISIS, I mean, who have made it their mission to kill interpreters for the U.S. IRAP sued the U.S. government and managed to get 13 of their Afghan and Iraqi clients and their families to safety here in the past year. But over 10,000 more are still waiting, in limbo and in danger. But it's also really important from a national security perspective for um, the U.S. to remain credible because if we get involved, as we often do, um, with conflict and war in other countries um, and rely on local nationals on the ground to provide services, it looks really bad on us and we might not be able to recruit the way we would want to as the United States if we don't follow through on our promises. Nayef did get the visa after an 11-month wait. He got out of Iraq in March of 2009. How else could I be sitting here eating lemon drizzle cake with him in his beautiful little apartment? I was thinking about it, though, that basically to remain safe, to remain alive, just because he'd helped U.S. forces, he had to leave Iraq. He had to leave his home, his family and his mother. It's not easy to leave my mom. I have to say goodbye to her. So we just, um, that was early morning and uh, I just uh, hug her and tell her how much I love her. And I will always, you know, be beside her and call her and talk with her. Mm -hmm. After that, I just uh, go and sit in a taxi. And she tried to be like in front of me like she's okay. Mm -hmm. But I know she's not. And when the taxi moved, um, I saw her in the mirror. She dropped in her knees and she was crying. I felt so bad and I was crying. And there was one more person that Nayef had to leave behind. I saw Betu and when I was sitting in a, in the afternoon outside and I saw Betu just come out of the shower. Huh? And <laughs> I said, oh my God, look at how that beautiful guy. And he it was just, till now I remember that and I always say it, his hair very black and shine in the sun. Betu Alami was an Iraqi soldier stationed in the same house as Nayef during the battle for Ramadi. After the break, we'll hear more about him and find out just what can happen when two Iraqi men fall in love during war. to Maeve in America. Before the break, we heard from Beyonce Knowles when she called in to say she was jealous of me and I told her that if she hurts me, she hurts herself. My guest today is Nayef Rebid, an Iraqi man now living in Seattle. I'd never been to the Pacific Northwest until I went to meet Nayef and I really liked this. The drizzling rain and overpriced homes reminded me of Ireland. I asked Nayef what his first experience of the place was. Till I um, arrived here, so I give all what I have to my mom, which is not was a lot, and I was have only fifty dollar in my pocket. You did when I fly, only fifty dollar, and I spent with McDonald's because the first time I saw McDonald's in the airport, <laughs> I spent some of them. So and I have that much in my pocket. And McDonald's I'll, is what like. 
$8 or $10. Uh, that was a guess. I actually never go to McDonald's. I never get fries and a caramel sundae and eat them at the same time really quickly. <laughs> I was just guessing, you know, just trying to like empathize with my guest. Oh my God, how am I going to survive here? I don't know what's waiting me. Did somebody collect you at the airport? Yes, the caseworker that I love her, she's named Erin. And she's one of the people also helped me a lot here. So she was waiting me and uh, and I come at night and I saw the downtown. I was like, oh my God, look how beautiful, look at this high buildings, you know. And so excited. And she took me to her home. Her husband make me uh, dinner. And after that, she gave me like 20 bucks. Oh, I have more, <laughs> you know. And, you went back to McDonald's. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Nayef's first weeks in Seattle were exciting and he was beginning to feel safe for the first time in years. He was relieved to be here, but something was missing. So Anna was feeling totally happy here. Yeah. And the reason is because Betunat was with me. Even if I see a new place, uh, I go somewhere. Like, I was, oh my God, I wish Betu with me and watch we watch this together. Yeah. He enjoy with me. The young couple were separated with no real prospect of being reunited. Their entire relationship from that first day Nayef saw Betu had seemed impossible. Remember, they met in a war zone. We went to the mission together and that mission was uh, to um, we go into the clear the general hospital in Ramadi from the terrorists. So it was very difficult and oh we have gosh. to stuck in a home around all those snipers and ID bombs and all that stuff. So the feeling was like you may going to die very soon. So so under those circumstances where you were so um, in danger, both of you, and then you had all these feelings. Yeah, and we start talking together. We was, uh, So it's in that place you, you want to see beautiful things happen to you. And that was the beautiful things is heaven when I start talking with Betu, the feeling. So I forget all about snipers. I forget about where I am now. I just, you know, want to see him every day. want to talk with him more. want to know him more. They had fallen in love almost without hesitation despite the huge barriers that lay in the way of their relationship. But in all that time, he still don't know my real name and where I'm from because he still called me David. What? We, we use, our, uh, we use um, different names and different places we come from, so they not recognize us where we're from is for safety. And he keep calling me David. Wow. <laughs> Did you choose the name David or somebody gave they, it to you? They ask us to choose, everyone choose a name mm. and it's easy for the American troops to use. So I just say David. <laughs> David Bigham. <laughs> <laughs> Tragedy is what finally forced Nayef to reveal his identity, where he was from, his real name, his family situation. His sister died, you see, and grief-stricken, he reached out to Beitou. And he come drive all the way from Baghdad to the south just to see me because I really was need him. I want to hug him. I want to tell him how I'm feeling and the situation I'm in now. And that time I tell him everything. There were no secrets between them anymore. 
But shortly afterwards, Nayef's visa came through and he found himself here in Seattle, missing Beitou. But what could he do about it? He was broke, far from anything familiar. And before he made any plans for their future, he had to get himself steady on his own two feet. I make a resume and how I introduce myself and I just learn and I go in the job fair. It was Lowe's and I introduced myself and I, I tell them I'm looking for to work with the you guys and they call me after two days and I get the job. You got so, the job at Lowe's? Yes. I mean, what did your resume look like? Did you say... And I have any resume before, but my resume is all the jobs I've been working with, you know, my skills, um, all that stuff. I mean, you're, but your skills are like jumping from roof to roof to clear terrorists from yeah, a hospital. <laughs> Six years later, he's still there and he's worked his way up to department manager. I wondered what it was like at the beginning. Such a different environment for him. Was it tough? He loved it, he told me, from the start. But even today, some things just get lost in translation. Yeah, like, for example, the jokes. Yeah. And they all laughing and I just look into their faces and smile. What about this? Um, why did the hippie drown? You know what hippie? What's the drone? I know hippie, but what's drone? Drown is like... Die in water. So why they did that? Because he was too far out. What's that mean? <laughs> What's far out mean? Far out. Is oh, far like, out. Yeah. Because he's far out. Yeah. In why the water. he is far out? <laughs> because, like, it's a joke. It's a joke about words. So, like, because hippies go far away. Luckily, the awkwardness was broken, as it so often is, by a cat. Come here. Appearing at just the right time. Lotus, a luxuriant Maine Coon, wandered over to Nayef and we both gladly focused on her. So how, when did you get her? I get her from shelter for uh, like a cat and you know, if no one adopt them, they will kill them. And so in that time I go and I I need, it's better not here yet. And I need, I need someone with me home because I feel very lonely. Nayef was doing great at work and feeling a freedom to be himself for the first time ever. But his heart was heavy because all of this was happening without Beitou by his side. I was really, you know, my my happiness not was full because of him. I always, you know, goes inside. Like when I see two couples holding each other and walking, and that time I really felt so bad. I mean, why not we could do that? Why we cannot walk like them, you know? Yeah. So it's too difficult for me, you know, it w- without bed to live in here in the United States. So we was connect together uh, by phone and after that by the internet, by um, Skype. Here's another clip from the movie Out of Iraq. It's a Skype call between the couple with Nayef translating for a very upset Beitou. <laughs> I don't care about no family. I don't care about travel. I don't care to back there. I just care about to see you and be next to you. So he was in Baghdad in that time, but what happened is his family, his family find out about our relationship and his life getting dangerous. So he either get married or he get killed. And in that time, um, I was so worried about him. And he not was feeling good because he's very far away in me. Till we uh, we decide to get him out. 
Thus began a torturous game of visas and asylum seeking and borders and paperwork that crossed four different countries, three different languages and two people so devoted to each other that none of that stuff should matter. Except, of course, that it did. With Beitou stuck in Baghdad, Nayef asked his caseworker in Seattle if anything could be done. And I told her, hey, I have a boyfriend there. She said the only way he could either your son or your brother and he applied for a visitor visa to him. They denied him an American consul back in Baghdad. Then they applied for a student visa for Beitou, which was also denied. And we heard about people can apply for asylum visa in Lebanon. We helped to collect the money and send it to him and he uh, buy the tickets and buy a tourist visa yeah. to go to Lebanon. And that was 2010. A tourist visa only lasts for 30 days, and after that, Beitou had to live undocumented in Lebanon, bringing a new set of dangers. Any time with a checkpoint or they find out about him, they will send him back to Iraq. Now, Beitou was stuck in Lebanon for months and then actually years. Despite being a gay man subject to persecution back in Iraq, his refugee application was turned down by the UNHCR. He was not given a reason. They later discovered that it was a lost in translation moment. You see, during his initial interview, the UNHCR representative asked if he had witnessed the torture in Abu Ghraib. This is a picture of an Iraqi prisoner of war. And according to the U.S. Army, Americans did this to him. Beitou's English is not super strong, and he had answered that he had seen it, just on TV. The representative missed that last part and listed him as a witness to torture. I saw those images on TV too. Millions of people did. The photographs were taken by the soldiers themselves. They are disturbing and explicit. In UNHCR rules, anyone he's witness for torturing or he's there, he now have a right to get the asylum. We jump now to January 2013. After four years of separation, some American friends had successfully advocated on Beitou's behalf to secure him one last interview with the UNHCR. And Nayef flew there to help him prepare. And I was like, oh my God, seriously, finally I'm going to see him after four years, you know. I was happy, but at the same time, I don't know what's going to be happening in an interview. These fears about the interview subsided when he got to actually see Beitou after all that time. And I was like, my heart was almost go out of my chest, yeah. like was beating very fast. Yeah. So when I coming in and I saw him, you know, it's it, I just get shaking and I hold him and I kiss him and I tell him how much I love him and same things for him. He was crying and he was just holding me because we miss each other a lot. I, I just want to feel him and I was want to hug him and I tell him I'm sorry I put you in all this because he left everything behind him just to be with me you know and I feel guilty and I, I just want to tell him like I'm here Over the next two days, Beitou faced yet another interview, 11 hours long, with the UNHCR, where the mix-up about him being present at Abu Ghraib when the Americans were torturing the Iraqi prisoners became clear. And so we shocked about that. So he clarified this. And after 11 hours, we don't know what's going to be happening, if they believe us or not, if they're going to uh, give him the yes or not. Another option emerged, not the US, but closer than Lebanon. And that time we applied for Canada. It's totally different uh, process. 
Nayef returned to Seattle, back to work in Lowe's, waiting to hear what, if anything, would happen with Beitu's application. He was called for an interview at the Canadian consulate. They have the interview with him and was a very nice person from Canada. He all asked him about how he is gay and live in Arabic culture. And after that, he told him, you're, you're, um, you get the visa to live in Canada. Oh, Canada. A few months later, Beitu was on his way to Vancouver. Not the same country as Nayef, but close. A two and a half hour bus journey, which Nayef was overjoyed to make every weekend for two years. I uh, proposed him after two days. You did? Yeah, and that was in a very beautiful place in, in a beach in Vancouver. They married in Canada on Valentine's Day 2014. Beitu had lots of work to do. This former army sergeant had to start over. He went to school to learn English. He worked as a dishwasher in a hotel and in a laundry at night. Nayef was an American citizen by then. I applied for him to visit me from Canada. Yeah. They denied him too. So this is like fifth time United States denied him. I mean, I'm sorry. When you're saying this, like, it makes me think about when I hear in the news this anti anti-refugee saying, oh, we can't let people in. It's too easy for people to come here. No. It's incredibly difficult. No, it's a lot of background check. It's a lot of paperwork. Mm. It's not easy. So we have, after I apply for him, we have one interview. We have to go to Montreal. Okay. To fly to Montreal. So I was so afraid. This is the sit. If they say no, <laughs> I will just move in Canada and live with him. That's it. Okay. Because I have enough from United States. That's yeah. what I said. Yeah. So we fly there and we have our interview in American Council. And it was 10 minute interview, which is surprised us. Compared she, to 11 hours. She only asked three, four questions. She said, have you been in Syria before? He said, no. Uh, how long you guys know each other? We said that time was nine years. Okay. So I give her all the pictures <laughs> since 2004 till now. I give her all the ticket when he was in Canada for two years and something. I go every single week, every single week. I uh, go there and and see him. And after that, she said, congratulations, you've been approved to uh, immigrant to live in the United States. And I <laughs> said, oh, my God, I've been waiting this long, long time for him to come to the United States. In 10 minutes, she approved him. <laughs> So I said, excuse me, can you say that again? What did you just say? Mm-hmm. But he not understand what she said because she said fast. And I was like, uh, okay, that time I want to scream <sighs> because I cannot wait. So I hold my mouth like that. <laughs> I hold my mouth and my eyes is like start crying and, and, and she's just cry. She did? Yeah, without, you know, even our story. And Betty said, please don't say anything till we get out of the council. <laughs> so she gave him paperwork and we go and was 27 below the, z- the zero, the temperature back in Montreal. It was February, it was freezing. So when I get out, I know it's, oh, it starts to scream and I go to the, the, it was a big hill of snow and I was like, ah, playing in the snow and, and scream and cry and I'm not, and I was shaking because I've been waiting this word all that years, you know, since I came to United States, I just waiting for her 
for him to prove him to United States because that's where we love to live and yeah. that's where we want to build our future in the United States. I have all my friends. I love the people here. I love my job. I love everything. So that was a really the biggest moment ever. And then sometimes there are days like this when that slow, steady effort is rewarded with justice that arrives like a thunderbolt. This morning, the Supreme Court recognized that the Constitution guarantees marriage equality. In doing so, they've reaffirmed that all Americans are entitled to the equal protection of the law, that all people should be treated equally, regardless of who they are or who they love. Beitu moved that same summer, and they had a wedding in Seattle. And I was the most happy person in the world, till now, of course. And now we live in our dream. We get a bigger apartment, but now we're looking for a home to buy. You are? Because we want to adopt kids. So we're so excited, and now we're looking for areas. Seattle is expensive. <laughs> so we're looking for areas around Seattle to get our first home so we could bring the kids and kids like not have family they need a family and we need them so we could build our own family here and live together thank you thank you that's great yeah well that's our show thank you so much for listening everybody maven america is a joint production of pretty good friends and first lip media this episode was produced by Posey Gruner and me, Maeve Higgins, with help from Liz Cole, Julie Smith-Clem, Erica Romero, Matt Chilts, Emily Alexander, Naomi Westwater-Weeks, and Pat Masidi-Miller, who wrote our theme music. This show was engineered by Ted Muldoon, with music by Sending Letters to the Sea. Special thanks to Fenton Bailey and all the filmmakers behind Out of Iraq. You can see the full documentary about Nayef on Logotv.com. Huge thanks to Lital Malad and all the First Look Media team. Subscribe to the podcast and come visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Maven America, where you'll find tons of photos of and information about our contributors and our guests. And can you do me a favor? Actually, I'm brazen, I know, but could you do me three favors? Rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe and finally, please send this show to someone you think might not normally get to hear it. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. More to come next week. Oh, I have one more. Okay. Two fish in a tank. Okay. Okay. Then one fish turns to the other one and says, do you know how to drive this thing? Drive. Yeah. Like, what she mean? <laughs> because, again, it's a joke. Think of what is a different tank. Oh. <laughs> but, oh, okay, wait a second. So you said the other fish ask the other. Yeah. If you know you how have, you, do you, you know, know how you drive? This Does the drive mean swim? No, like, drive like a... Oh, so drive the tank? Mm-hmm. Really? Really? <laughs>